1: Welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here just with Richard Lawson, our film
2: critic. Hello, we're doing a little, what they call in the theater, a two-handed.
1: Hey, I, you know, we, uh, we'll be joined by Rebecca Keegan later, so, uh, you know, we are nothing without our uh, backup. But yeah, Mike and Joanna are both off in various lands uh, mm-hmm. as we speak, so we're going to handle things on our own. And we're going to start with news that, as you're hearing this, is a little bit old, but is kind of broken as we were in the recording studio, which is that uh, Jonathan Depp he tied.
2: Yeah, the great director at 72. Yeah, which yeah.
1: is uh I mean, I don't really know any details yet, but it, it definitely certainly came as a shock to me. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I guess when no one is when someone isn't publicly sick, you don't necessarily know what's uh what's happening. So
2: Yeah, you know, we're just sort of looking at Twitter, which is I guess how you find out about these things these yeah. days. Um, and it's interesting to see um, how different, you know, I mean, I follow a lot of film people on Twitter, obviously, um, you know, some people are remembering him for his really lauded concert films mm-hmm. or, you know, he's had such an interesting peripatetic career. I mean, obviously, most kind of headlines are going to Silence of the Lambs or, you know, which is probably his most famous movie. Certainly,
1: the one for which he won the Oscar and yeah. uh, which it won, yeah. it won the, it won uh, the big five. Yeah, the big, that's what I was trying to think of, the big yeah. five. Yeah. yeah,
2: which is picture, actor, actress, director, screenwriter, right? Screenplay. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you know, so and that that's certainly the first of his movies that I saw, and it's one of still one of my all time favorites. I um, mean,
1: it's the like, it's you know, it's a classic for anyone's career, not yeah. just within his. Yeah.
2: But he did a lot of other interesting stuff. I think that his probably most recent, like, really lauded uh, project was Rachel Getting Married in two thousand eight, uh, which I love um, that movie. you know was love a, that movie. A really um and 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 just looking at, I mean, the difference in in, in style alone. I mean, Rachel Getting Married is this kind of wandering mm-hmm. handheld sort of thing feels sort of improvised whereas um you know silence of the is much more formally structured and so he did a lot he did a lot on television he did his concert films you know it's interesting curtis hansen who died last Mm -hmm. year had a similar sort of erratic but 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 not in a sort of bad way erratic but like a career like they, they they both he and demi um did uh, just were kind of masters of many genres. Right?
1: Yeah, and it was, you know, he, you know, recently was directing TV episodes and a lot yeah. more of uh, concert films. You always had the sense that he might come back with a, a feature or, uh, you know, or a concert movie that would just totally surprise you and uh, yeah. it just felt like there was a lot of work left for him.
2: Yeah, because there was no sort of clear arc to his career he just seemed to sort of do what was interesting to him then um, you know he did a couple, of, a couple episodes of that show enlightened the, the Mike White series mm-hmm. that, I, that is one of the best things that's been on TV in a long time and you know but then he'll you know do something with Neil Young or whatever so there was no sense certainly that he was slowing or or he was reaching some conclusion
1: but. and yeah uh, you were a fan of kind of his last narrative feature Ricky in the flash a movie that I was of, like you yeah. needed some defenders yeah. and there you go and it,
2: that's and that's an interesting blend of I mean he'd worked with Meryl Street before in the Manchurian mm-hmm. Canada which I was telling you before. Before we recorded, I think that that's a really undersung Meryl Streep performance, you know, playing the, the Angela Lansbury role in that remake as a steely villain. So they'd worked together before and they did this movie that kind of blends his concert film Techniques into a narrative mm-hmm. story, and I that movie came and went, and not a lot of people saw it or liked it. But I, I think it has a great central performance. The music is really fun. It's a lot of covers of uh, you know classic rock songs. Even uh, she sings Springsteen, and then the last scene, and it's really it's great. Yeah, yeah. So worth worth checking out if you if you want to kind of look back at Demi's career, look at some of the smaller stuff.
1: Yeah, I remembered recently trying to see if Rachel Getting Married was available on streaming because I just had like an yeah. itch to watch it. and It wasn't there, but uh, yeah. you know,
2: and if any we- of you, if I, I it just can't be possible but if any of you have not seen sounds of the lambs oh my god <laughs> go see it or i mean go find it and watch it at home and and um just be, be in awe it's, well you we
1: were both a little too young for it at the time so i assume you came yeah. to it after it was already kind of in the canon
2: well i'll tell you it's um my my mom was always pretty permissive with me and my sister in terms of what we watched oh my god. We, we, we rent a lot of horror movies and um that was kind of my first genre that got me into movies but like I came home from the video store with my sister with sounds of the lambs and I was in, so that was ninety. The movie came out in 91. So this is probably 93. So I was 10. Uh, and, um, we put it on and and we got about twenty minutes into whenever Catherine Martin's in the in the hole. Uh-huh. And my mom was like, "Nope." Yeah. it's one of two <laughs> times in my life that my mom t- made us stop a movie and take it out.
1: I can't even yeah. imagine what nightmares that would have given. I don't. I think yeah. I don't think I saw until college. Like, because I mean, we have discussed this. Neither of us is really a horror movie person. No. So, like, we not might, anymore. I used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. I think even now, like, it's still you know. Anytime I'm like walking by myself in a parking lot and you see a van, and it's like, yeah. okay, don't get don't get shoved into that
2: van. <laughs> oh, it's completely. Yeah. I mean, and. And there's just so many iconic things in that movie, and it's a really good example what Demi did. And this, you know, the screenplay helped too. But, like, that novel is not like high art exactly mm-hmm. the Thomas Harris novel. But Demi just saw some sort of grim potential, and and that movie is always kind of scratching at something deeper and something more, and it it does it doesn't flatly state out you know what that is exactly. Yeah. But that movie just has this this weight to it that mm-hmm. um is is really special, and that's hard to do with something that's kind of like an airport read, you know.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. If somehow you're listening to this in Silence of the Lambs as a as a best picture winner. You have not caught. Uh, it is a very. It's not an easy watch, but it's a not a hard one either. It's just really worth it and it's essential
2: of- i mean you have yeah
1: to, yeah you gotta see yeah. it so uh yeah jonathan demi we're mm-hmm. uh we're sad to hear that we won't have any more movies from him
2: yeah but at least there's a lot in in, in his career that we can go back and and appreciate
1: yeah so for the rest of the episode that we had planned out we have, we have uh, an interview a very brief interview that you and I did with Christian Bale and Oscar Isaac who are the yeah. stars of The Promise yeah. Uh, yeah. which opened in theaters last weekend it's about the Ar- Armenian genocide which uh, is not officially called a genocide by the uh, government officials of Turkey which makes it kind or of, many
2: other including our own
1: yeah yeah, uh, yeah it's a it's a weirdly uh, it's geopolitically complicated but horrifying uh, bit of history that yeah. uh, there's a lot of Armenian Americans who are kind of very kind of been waiting for a movie like this there's never mm-hmm. really been a movie about the Armenian genocide in this way, so it was kind of a heavy topic. And we went to a hotel suite and talked to them about it. And uh, luckily, they seemed to get along pretty well. So it was not just a heavy conversation about right. yeah. genocide. In some levity, yeah. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll share that of uh, that fairly brief conversation now.
2: So we're here today with Christian Bale and Oscar Isaac, Hello. Hi. talking about their film "The Promise," which is this sweeping romantic war epic. Uh, we were sitting here earlier setting up, and you guys seem to have a good rapport did, did you know each other before uh this film
3: no 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 this was all built uh, just on this film uh alone it was a a pretty grueling shoot yeah so it was uh, uh it was nice to be able to uh develop a deep and intimate friendship together wouldn't you say no, <laughs> <laughs> no. there he is again it's just a joker
4: Not really. I don't like you much at all. There he goes again.
3: Uh, uh. So
1: at the level you guys are at, it's not like you're going to the same audition rooms and seeing each other across the room and in competition. But I assume you would have been in the same circles or, uh, you know, been up for the same roles at some point. What knowledge did you have of each other before this?
3: Uh, Well... I don't think I've, I've never gone up for any of the roles that Christian's gone up for or has been asked to do, but, uh, I've, I've of course been very aware of of his work for a long time, admired it greatly, and was definitely one of the reasons I wanted to do the film. You were already on board, I believe, when I was approached. So, uh, so yes, that was, uh, It uh, definitely was enticing
4: Well I was on board But largely I was saying Well but depending on who plays uh, Mikhail
1: So you weren't just saying like I'm in you kind of waited until you saw Who your scene partner was going to be
4: Uh, No Yeah as I see it anyway (laughs) And then unfortunately They cast uh, Oscar
2: Mm a great tragedy uh, now how familiar were, were you guys with this particular story i'm curious like um you know and the political context around it because it's set in the early 1900s but it's still really relevant today were were you aware of of Very this history
4: relevant to today um, i was uh, looking at the news with the Yazidis on the mountaintop uh, tragically being slaughtered by isis at the same time as i was reading uh, the script which features a scene of the armenians on uh, musadag um uh, under siege and, and being slaughtered. Um, ashamed to admit that uh, I knew almost nothing about the Armenian genocide. One and a half million people, um, brutally murdered, and yet I'm not alone in not knowing much about this genocide.
3: Yeah, likewise, I knew next to nothing about it so i was i was shocked not to not only to find out what had happened but also to realize that so much of the world also has been kept in the dark uh intentionally so about the horrors that occurred uh you know the armenian population decimated by their own government uh in the guise of nationalism uh so so i think that was uh Quite quite the uh, sudden history lesson to get and to delve into and particularly to listen to the stories of survivors.
1: So this story is so prevalent for the people in the Armenian diaspora around the world, and there are several actors of Armenian descent in this movie. So did you learn more from your co-workers on this film or from the consultants who helped you work on it in the process of making it?
4: Yeah, definitely. Consultants, advisors, um, other actors on the film. You cannot help but with uh, certain scenes where... There are there were Armenians on the set whose families were directly involved in the slaughters that we were representing. Very emotional, very unique, very special. Uh, the entire film was set up by Kirk Okorion, an Armenian. There have been many attempts to make a film about the Armenian genocide on this scale. They've never succeeded. Um, usually, always, as I've been told, uh, due to um, Turkish uh, interests um, coming in. Um, and, uh, he or was only fear of
3: disrupting. Yeah. Right. Uh, relationship. Uh, yes. I
4: mean, absolutely. Turkey has enormous strategic value, which is why probably you've had no U S sitting president ever call it a genocide. Uh, we've had the Pope very recently call it a genocide. We've had presidents out of office calling it a genocide, but nobody in office, uh, saying that. And, um, you know, this was the crumbling of the Ottoman empire, the birth of Turkey as a nation state, there was a lot of Turkish nationalism. Um, I very much hope that this film can help, um, rather than, rather than create more hostilities, but, uh, you know, there's, there's obviously going to be great birthing pains and you, 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 talk with or see in documentaries, uh, survivors who witness the brutal slaughter of their families having to talk about people who say that they're lying about that and the pain of having to deal with that. Not only the pain of seeing your loved ones killed brutally, but also the pain of people not believing you and people denying. And I liken it a little bit like the 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 uh, the argument about climate change here in America, you know, as though there really is an argument. You know, people creating this sense that there is a debate. There's no debate. It's happening. And the same thing with the genocide, that people have created this sense um, uh, of uh, disinformation to make people think that maybe it didn't happen. And that's uh, really a falsehood.
2: Does the charged political aspect of the movie um, and potential pushback from the Turkish government or other governments potentially, does that ever make you trepidatious about taking on a role or that kind of risk? Um, is that something you even think of?
3: Um, well, I think it was important, not so much for those reasons, but when looking at this story, uh, to to really talk to Terry and to Christian and to figure out what our approach is and and to really uh, try to uh, be judicious with how we do certain scenes, how the story uh, uh, um, develops, uh, because it, there is a responsibility there when you are uh, depicting things, these atrocities that actually occurred uh, that haven't been uh, really uh, shown in, in film not at this level, at least. So, so that's you know, the, the, if if you want to say trepidation, but there's just some carefulness with that. Uh, not so much the pol- the charged political aspect of it, because it's really only political for one side, you know, and the other it's it's truth for the other side. Yeah.
1: Well, my guess is this isn't going to be released in Turkey, and uh, no one's really worried about trying to get it out there.
3: Yeah I mean uh, the thing is it's not an anti-turkish film so you know it's uh, it's uh, it's a pro factual film it's a pro healing film and and more than that you know obviously we hope it helps but the the big thing is that we we've it's exciting that we can help at to this level because 100% of the proceeds of the film will be going to humanitarian charities uh Amnesty International uh um, Human
4: Rights Watch Human Rights the Watch. Enough Project yeah. Century
3: yeah, it's extraordinary that all of the proceeds of a film of this size uh, will be going to that. So,
4: And so, they're relevant. They're relevant yeah. charities. They're all charities that deal with uh, human rights abuses, that deal with refugee crises, that deal with holding people accountable for uh, genocidal activities. Um, and uh, uh, Terry made a very interesting choice, which I, I did question him on greatly whilst we were making the film, because in doing the research, we learned how barbaric – uh, uh, uh the killings were. Um, he was very strong minded that he wanted to make this a PG 13 film because he wanted younger people to be able to see it in order for it to be used as an educational resource. And there's a big social campaign. Survival pictures didn't see this just as a film. And that's the end of the story. They wanted it to be the launch for a social campaign. Um, the hundred percent proceeds as Oscar was talking about going to, uh, uh, various, um, uh, uh, charities. Um, but also they just started up the promise Institute for human rights at UCLA, um, and um, uh, 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 their, their real uh, goal with this is to uh, start a serious conversation and to educate people and to um, be a resource for people to come together in collecting data on human rights, um, on genocide, um, and in helping with the huge refugee crisis that we're having.
1: So you guys were saying at the beginning that this was a really grueling shoot. And it's always hard when actors are talking about grueling shoots when you're talking about real life, really difficult things. But, uh, you know, it's hard. So sometimes you hear about a tough shoot and everyone comes away hating each other. And uh, you guys clearly haven't done that. So what makes you go through a long day of shooting in the desert and at the end of the day actually like each other?
4: Well, I've got to say, you know, um, as much of a dick as Oscar is, um, he's an absolute consummate actor. And I think he's one of the finest
2: of our generation.
1: And that's what uh, makes you like him?
3: He didn't say he liked me. I oh, no, He yeah, purposely left Very that true. out. Yeah. <laughs> I never said that.
2: Uh, well, thank you guys so much. Uh, congrats on the film. It's a really noble project, so I hope it's able to uh, do some good and highlight uh, uh, something that a lot of people don't know anything about.
1: So it's an interesting time for television. As It's kind of always an interesting time for television. And as, as we'll mm-hmm. talk about later with Rebecca about the WGA strike, uh, TV writers are very busy because there's a lot of uh, good TV. Yeah. And uh, two really interesting examples of it are out this week. We have The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, which uh, debuted, I think, its first three episodes. And then will be coming weekly. Right. And then also coming this week is Netflix's Dear White People, which is in the usual Netflix mode. where all 10. I assume it's 10. It's episodes. 10. Yeah. It's always mm-hmm. 10 episodes. Uh, they'll all be dropping at once. So uh, it's not only good television, but it's, it's complicated to figure out how to watch it, which is always my problem. Uh, But let's start with The Handmaid's Tale, which I think has had maybe the splashiest rollout. They had a big screening at the Tribeca Film Festival, which uh, made some headlines because no one in the cast would call it feminist, which is very interesting. Hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people are really excited about it. It's this beloved book. It's obviously a really timely time for there to be the Handmaid's Tale adaptation. But I think you had kind of more uh, hesitations about it than a lot of people.
2: Yeah. You know, I was not. Familiar with the Margaret Atwood book, which I I, I should be. I I, it's, I reread I, it recently. Yeah. It's
1: very it's very good. Read. I,
2: I should have read it by now, and, and I and I will do that. But yeah, I I watched it a while ago. They sent they made episodes available to a couple episodes available to me a couple months ago, and mm-hmm. you know it's certainly the most I would say the most ambitious show that Hulu has done so far uh, in terms of its kind of seriousness and its heft um, and its scope in a way, even though it's about a very sort of interior w- world. I, I, I found it a little dull, mm. to be honest. And it wasn't that the themes weren't interesting or the performances. Elizabeth Moss, Moss is, the, is the lead and she's great. But uh, something about it felt sort of too insistent on it being prestige television. Mm. You know, it didn't feel a kind of alive in a way. That said, I only saw the first two and it was a while ago. And it's since gotten a bunch of great reviews. And, you know, Obviously, thematically about this repressive society, what it does to women and their bodies, and how how kind of sexual politics are ordered in this dystopian kind of fascist world mm-hmm. uh, are really important and really relevant to right now. So I think I definitely owe it a second a second.
1: But that problem you're talking about, I think, comes up in a lot of different shows. The idea of being like, we need to tell you how important and prestigious and expensive this is. And you've watched a lot more, you know, mediocre TV pilots than I have. But I was thinking something like Good Girls Revolt, the Amazon series. It was like set in the 60s and it just like had all the period details, right, but just didn't really have a story to it. Uh, Why does that keep happening? Like, does everyone just want to justify spending so many millions of dollars on television?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there are other great examples like Vinyl, Mm, Uh, you know, a show that... one season one season Aborted second it season. got a second season and then the rumor is that HBO got the budget for Game of Thrones season seven oh. and we're like we gotta cut something and yeah. so vinyl was what well and got, everyone kind cut. of wondered
1: why they even gave vinyl a second season because no one watched it, it. yeah uh,
2: you know friend of the podcast Griffin Newman R.I.P. <laughs> your Griffin. role on vinyl he's doing better <laughs> the now the chick though. just got a premiere yeah, series premiere series announced. got a name is on show so but anyway yeah um, I think that yeah there's this impulse to like if we throw money at the problem if we hire great set designers and great costume designers mm-hmm. and you know and then we'll we'll we'll, we'll We'll get to something kind of meaningful eventually yeah there is a sort of endemic problem to a lot of prestige television or attempts to make it prestigious this obviously handmaid's tale is a different case because it is based on ip that like is really revered and is important for a lot of people and sort of for discourse about um feminism and about the potential you know extremes that some sort of anti-feminist stuff could get to i mm-hmm. mean you look there are shades of men's rights stuff in this, you know, in this story and, and, and the troubling growth of that online, although it is you know, was written a long time ago and is set in the future, it does feel credible in a way. So yeah. I think that like this is a different case than like vinyl, which was just like baby boomer exist? nostalgia <laughs> that shouldn't yeah. have existed. Yeah. Uh,
1: pop quiz, can you name another original series on Hulu?
2: I can because there's one I really like called Casual ah, there with you go. Michaela go. That's the
1: only other one I think I really um, hear about.
2: There was the James Franco thing based on Stephen King that didn't go anywhere yep. past that. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah,
1: so there was so this Hollywood Reporter piece about this today had this amazing opening line which was can The Handmaid's Tale do for Hulu what six years and hundreds of millions of dollars has not. Uh, Ooh, so the stakes yeesh. are the stakes are high for uh, Hulu for this because they really oh, want like, I mean that's yeah. part of that like proving how prestige they are thing we're talking about is yeah. that they really need to prove themselves as a competitor to, ne- to Netflix and Amazon.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure that they are very happy about all the good reviews that um, Handmaid's Tale has gotten yeah. and you know in a perverse way the political climate it's the right climate for the show you know and no one wants to benefit from the trump administration well except for trump but um (laughs) But, you know, it is timely.
1: Well, I'm I'm kind of curious about the other show. We want to talk about Dear White People, because mm-hmm. that's based on a movie that also came timely. out. Uh, yeah, it's very timely. And it's based on a movie that came out during the Obama administration and was about a that's lot right. of these ideas of race and identity that I think have only become more prevalent since the movie came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you talk about like black kids on a college campus kind of fighting against like what white people assume about them. So yeah. I'm curious about how uh, the TV version reads in the current context.
2: Yeah, I, I I recently watched all ten episodes because I was I'm, I'm I'm writing about it, but also because I was engrossed. It's it's mm-hmm. um it's a really interesting show. I think I tweeted something about how it's fascinatingly structured and it it tells a, a one larger story while also telling a lot of shorter kind of stories on the side. So it, formally, it's interesting, but obviously thematically and and, and plot-wise, it's, it's, it's very much about activism, specifically, you know, Black activism and Black Lives Matter, you know, sort of ideology. And it's set on a college campus, so we're talking about safe spaces and things like that. So it feels very present, very of the moment. And it does it in a way that is, I mean, there are moments when it's a little bit kind of, I guess, a little didactic and sort of just like lecturing. But like, for the most part, it weaves these themes and these um political issues, these these thorny political issues, into a really engrossing story, where, you know, these are young college kids who are really smart. It's supposed to be an Ivy League school. And so they're talking about this stuff. and they're they a lot of the show is about protest and and organizing.
1: What's the show about?
2: Well, so it's about it's about so the kind of inciting incident is there's um this humor magazine. Uh, that seems to lean kind of libertarian right wing, like, you know, like they would, they would call people snowflakes maybe mm-hmm. um, uh, that they have a, a black party. Uh, and yeah,
1: I-, I scoff, but it happens like every ha- single yeah. year, like Cinco de Mayo is coming up. There's going to be something racist oh, on a college campus. God, yes. Like it yeah. always
2: happens. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, it might, if you were sort of unaware, it might seem absurd, but you no, know, I mean, this, it totally we, we read something about this at least once a year. So, uh, so that happens. And then um, members of a sort of black student union, they storm the party. And then so that kind of kicks off this tension on this very Tony schools mm-hmm. campus. And there's a
1: I, presumably majority white. campus. Oh, yeah. yeah. So
2: there's a historically black um, dorm, mm-hmm. uh, where a lot of the action takes place. Um, and so the status of that dorm is kind of comes into question as the, as the season goes on. So, yeah, it's all this political stuff, but, you know, these are also kids. And so there's romance and there's self-discovery. Um, there's a gay character who's figuring some stuff out about himself. And, and, and I think that the show really weaves that all together in a very engaging and credible way. And the actors, who are a lot of kind of um, unknowns relatively, are so good. And it's just a thrill to watch a show that is largely... You know, young black people talking, sort of about their the way that they socially organize and about, you know, their there are conflicting views within the community. It's not a monolithic kind of ideology that we're talking about. So it feels pertinent and well done, which is not always the case. Sometimes things are timely and 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 politically important, but aren't entertaining or mm-hmm. or artistic. And this show is beautifully directed by a host of really cool directors, including Barry Jenkins, oh, uh, who directs an episode. Yeah, so. I think it's it's well worth checking out, even if it doesn't seem, you know, well, that's not for me or about me. That's, you know.
1: Well, it's a fascinating route because the movie Dear White People debuted at Sundance four years ago, something like that. And, yeah. I, I, you know, usually you see so a director has a big movie debuts at Sundance and then they get assigned to direct. Jurassic World or something, right. um. But to have it adapted as a Netflix series, like obviously most movies are not well suited to series. But I really like this as the idea for like amplifying a voice at Sundance that you discover. That's really exciting.
2: Yeah, that director is Justin Simeon, or- former Paramount publicist. Did you, oh, is that did you right? work with I him? When he, we,
1: yeah, we, he used to be a publicist. Wow, I, good I remember for him. He got me uh, into. I think he was at Paramount. He got me into a Comic Con panel once. So, wow. Yeah.
2: Well, he, yeah, he's doing. He's doing well. You know, it really does. It's a. It is a rare film to TV thing that that works, and I think that. I was te- I was tweeting about it while watching it with James Poniewozik, the critic at New York Times, and I said to him that it's the rare, you know, people a lot of times say, well, well, it's it's not really a show; it's sort of a televised novel, you know. It's a, we're telling a novelistic story. It's becoming and, such
1: a fascinating cliche. Yeah, and
2: you're like, ah, that's bullshit. This actually does no. feel like this kind of really vivid, alive. social satire novel that would get like a a rave, you know, like Mm -hmm. would get rave reviews. It's hard to explain if you haven't seen it, but like it just, it keeps looping back in time and and shifting perspective. And it, it does, it feels like you're reading something really literary. It's really cool.
1: Yeah, no, that's really exciting. Yeah. And, like, Netflix has, you know, and, and in terms of their avatar of peak TV and really expanding what television series are, like, you know, they've had things like Marco Polo, which has this very international cast, but uh-huh. uh, peak TV, like many things, it's been very white and having mm-hmm. something that's coming from, like, a, a different and uh, fascinating perspective. It's a welcome yeah. addition. and
2: it's genuinely artful and, and, you know, in the same way that Insecure on HBO uh, is, yeah. you know, it has the imprimatur of, like, you know a sort of directorial vision and yeah and, uh, and isn't
1: maybe Baz Lerman making a movie about rap
2: oh dear god or series yeah. TV series about rap oh dear god yeah
1: uh, yeah so Handmaid's Tale and your White People uh, I guess that's a busy weekend's full of uh, viewing and there's not much out in theaters this weekend so maybe that's
2: uh, stay home it's yeah. April showers
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah it's, 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 as we record this it's nasty outside yeah. so just just avoid the outdoors entirely So now we're on the line with Rebecca Keegan, our Hollywood correspondent, who joins us from time to time to explain what on earth is going on in Los Angeles. Uh, Rebecca, thank you for calling in. Hi, guys. Uh, And there's a lot going on in Los Angeles right now. And I guess in New York, too, the uh, Writers Guild of America has uh, multiple branches. But uh, there's a writer's strike possibly looming. And you are as well versed in this as anyone on earth. And uh, Richard and I just kind of wanted you to tell us, like, uh, are are they going to go
0: on strike? You know, I, I mean, I probably put the chances at about 50-50 right now. It was very significant that about 96% of the Writers Guild members who voted voted to support their negotiators uh, if they want to strike. That means that the the union has a lot of solidarity. They are really walking into the um, room negotiating with the studios with a strong sense of being on the same page as a group. Um but the problem is, the union and the producers are really far apart on the issues that they're talking about: the the health plan, uh, TV writer pay. They they have a wide gulf uh, to cover by May first, which is just next week. Yeah.
2: So the the health plan stuff is obviously important. But for, for our purposes, I feel like the writer pay is maybe the, the kind of juicier aspect of it. So can you just kind of uh, explain a little bit about what exactly are what are the contentious issues um, in terms of salary and whatnot?
0: Yeah, it's easy to get on the in the weeds on this stuff really quickly, as I'm realizing as I go through all these different contract points. But there are a couple of big changes in the TV industry that have affected the way people get paid. And one of them is that we have all of these short series now. Um, and, the, and the limited series, the writers obviously don't get paid as much because they're getting paid per episode. By um, short series,
1: you mean not like short television, but like Westworld, which only runs 10 episodes as opposed to the classic 22 episode season.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So the, the problem is sometimes those seasons take as long for the writers to produce. So they're working just as long as they would for a 22 episode season, but they're getting, they're not getting paid for it. Um, And it's really a change in the way television is made that the writer's contract hasn't caught up with. So that's a big sort of issue on the table. There's also the way writers are compensated for their work on streaming services like Hulu and Netflix, they get paid much less for those shows than they do for broadcast shows and for cable shows. Way back in 2007, 2008, when the last writer's strike happened, there was a sense that, you know, this whole internet thing might not pan out. Um, and so let's the studios were able to negotiate that writers would be paid a lot less for those kinds of shows. I think it's clear now in 2017 that they are among the most sort of important, talked about, awarded, buzzy shows there are, and writers want their compensation to reflect that.
2: Especially when you look at some of these shows and like that they're not low budget, you know, it's not like they're like making these kind of, you know, with popsicle sticks, like they're really lush productions. And so you would think, you know, I mean, it seems to me that like reasonable that the writers, you know share in that budget, it you know, expenditure. Yeah, you want the writers
0: to be as well compensated as the set designer on The Crown. Yeah, exactly. I mean, The, the Crown is a great example because everything, the, the production design, the locations, the costumes, uh, the the budgets are enormous on that show, um, but none of it's possible without writers. So, so why should their pay structure be any different? Now, of course, the top tier writers on a show have... Um, they're usually extremely well compensated, the showrunners. But a lot of this stems from how the sort of lowest paid folks on the totem pole are, are are compensated. Those, the minimums is really what the writers are fighting for here.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's always surprising to me to hear that cho- that Netflix and Amazon, these streaming services, are paying the least of anybody else because they are attracting this top-flight talent. So is the idea that if you're a writer who's just kind of breaking in or isn't a big name, like you will accept a lower salary to work with Peter Morgan on the crown as opposed to getting a job in the writer's room on The Big Bang Theory?
0: I mean, first of all, the, these jobs are few and far between. So most sort of newbie writers are excited to get any job. And oftentimes they are starting out on on shows, on streaming services. It's not like they're weighing kind of a million offers Mm -hmm. typically. It's a profession that doesn't really have a middle class, like so many professions in America now. I mean, there are these extremely well-compensated showrunners. And then there are oftentimes these other writers who may work And then not work again for three years. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're really well paid for that one season they worked and and they have to stretch that money over a very long period of time. So, I mean, you know, we, of course, are always talking about the big gun showrunners because they're so interesting and, and, and they're extremely wealthy. But there's this whole sort of other class of writers who are kind of barely getting by from year to year.
2: So if there is a strike, Rebecca, what does that look like? I mean, so this affects the 2017 to 2018 television season, right? But so, I mean, I, 10 years ago was a long time, you know, so the last time we had a strike. So so, how would this play out in, in, in theory?
0: Well, I mean, it was interesting. I read our colleague Laura Bradley wrote an interesting piece about how the writer's strike uh, played out previous writer strikes played out in the late night TV industry, which is one that first feels the hit because of course those writers are writing off the day's news. They can't stockpile scripts for that. Um, And if you look at the way past writer strikes unfolded, you know, a lot of uh, late night TV went into reruns. And so the crews, the production crews on those shows are out of work immediately. Um, Scripted television, there's a little bit of a delay. Uh, You'll see, You know, shows that are supposed to premiere in the fall, which would be being written and produced over the next couple of months, those would be sort of the next to to feel the pain. And then for movies, it's, you know, movies that are on a release calendar for 18 months from now would be the ones where you would see the impact.
2: And I mean, in 10 years ago, I I mean, I can't unfortunately think of any specific examples, but I know that there were both movies and television shows that were sort of in the hopper ready to go. that because of the strike just never happened and, and you know, never will. So like p- p- presumably there is stuff that could just disappear, which is, feels kind of like sad, even though, yeah. you know, obviously that the writers have a, a reason to strike
1: yeah no i'm endlessly fascinated by all of the weird ripple effects of strikes like this when you just yeah. see like you know how lost got screwed because our season was too short and then also a uh, transformers maybe went into production without a script and uh, i mean it has a really big impact and it seems like everyone in hollywood understand even if they want to kind of denigrate the writers and make them the lowest men on the totem pole on a set they they know that the writers have the power to screw everything up
0: well and it's interesting here too because there are all these weird little ancillary industries that feel the pain. Like the neighborhood that I live in is bordered by three studios, Warner Brothers, Universal, and Disney. And my little local dry cleaner gets a ton of business from the studios. So if production stops, this mom and pop business feels it. So for, you know, TV and film consumers, there is that, oh, what's going to happen to my show? And then here in Los Angeles, it's a, a sort of economic uh, it's a terrifying thing economically for a lot of businesses.
2: Yeah, because LA isn't entirely a one-industry town, but like that is an industry that looms pretty large in in the sort of economy. So it it is like a it, it's not just about you know so and so writer from X show you know stopping work. It's it is it has broader impact, obviously.
0: It does. It does, and it's funny, Kate. You brought up that Transformers movie, which is sort of an infamous one. It's hard for me to tell which of those movies had supposedly finished scripts and which didn't. They mm-hmm. all kind of blur together. But yeah, I mean, Michael Bay sort of famously said, "Oh, this, that movie was terrible because the, the writers strike." Um, and there were other movies. Like I remember, I think Confessions of a Shopaholic was another one that went into. Uh, production Mm. before there was a, before there was a a finished script. So you, you do, I also, I think it's no accident that we're seeing some studios sort of move around releases on their calendar, both Disney and Fox in the last week announced some big release date changes. I suspect that studios are sort of looking at what reasonably is done and what's probably going to need a polish that may or may not happen in May, June or July. If there's a writer strike.
2: So what is the mood like in town? I mean, uh, you know uh, it's a it's a pretty liberal town uh, and you know I think that a lot of people support unions and support you know the right to strike and stuff like that, but obviously it has these these kind of effects like are people sort of supportive of the writers or how how is that how is that feeling?
0: Well, it's interesting. it's not uniform, even among writers i for instance, screenwriters that I've talked to are kind of annoyed that TV writers are getting apparently so many of the concessions in the deal making. And then there are a lot of people in town who are uh, production executives. Just last week, Joanna Robinson and I were at, at Marvel and talking to some executives there, they're sort of just trying to figure out what to do. Everybody is kind of in um, strike contingency planning mode. I don't hear a lot of people complaining about the writers. This just sort of this sense of uncertainty and how does it affect me? What am I going to do?
1: Uh, isn't there? Isn't it possible that the screen actors are going to be next? Don't, don't these kind of come in tandem? These potential strikes.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, this the SAG contract is the next one set to be negotiated. It's sort of like a domino effect. The Directors Guild negotiates their contract first, then the writers, then SAG. It's interesting, too. I mean, one, probably one of the other earliest places if there's a strike that we would see how it's impacting things is at the MTV Movie and TV Awards this year, which are scheduled for May 7th, which would be if there is a a walkout among the first live events that that would have to be produced without writers. And not only would writers not be able to work on it, but if you're a SAG member actor and you're nominated, technically you're not supposed to go. Mm. So, so what do you do? How does the, what does the MTV, you know, film and TV awards look like without Emma Watson or, I mean, all of these big stars that supposedly drive their ratings.
1: And none of these big stars want to be the, the, um, the break, the break, yeah, the break the
0: picket line. God, no. and, you know, it's interesting because that particular award show has really tried to kind of reinvent itself this year, mixing TV and film, mixing genders in categories. It's a big year for that for that show. And I they've really sort of put a lot into getting people out for it. So that will be interesting to see how everybody handles that.
2: If you were placing a bet, do you think it would happen? Like, would you? How would you? How would you? you bet on that?
0: I think, oh gosh, I, like I said, I mean, I think it's about, I think it's about fifty-fifty. This yeah. is an interesting, you know, th- the fact that the writers are going in there with this huge mandate. Ninety-six percent of them saying they're willing to strike really tells the 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 producers like, let's get serious. I mean, theoretically, they can use this next th- six days to bang through these contract points and get it done. It, one other possibility is that they could delay. They could agree to push back the contract deadline by a week if they feel like, hey, we're close let's keep talking we just need another you know two or three days to come to an agreement that's one thing that they could do
1: they won't push it back just to rescue the mtv movie and tv awards the most important thing in the calendar <laughs> <There'd be. laughs>
0: maybe
2: um well when, when this a similar vote happened in, in 10 years ago it was 90 percent approval so yeah. this is higher so who knows it's
0: higher and a lot more people turned out it's interesting because the guild has tools it didn't last time like they have a podcast now and um uh, many, many writers are on social media and sharing their sort of support, which has kind of a ripple effect. You know, last time they had, they could communicate with each other via email and phone calls, but they have a whole bunch of new ways to sort of get their message out this time.
1: Yeah, I mean, Twitter barely existed when uh, when the last strike yeah. happened. I'm just remembering, like, all the photos of, like, Tina Fey on the picket line and 30 Rock yeah. and, like, what on earth a, a tweeted WGA strike would look like this time around. Well,
2: I... Were,
0: I, I the, the picket lines were fun last time. I enjoyed going out to them. I remember I went to the one, at, I think it was at Paramount last time, and I was talking to this charming, fascinating man who was just a random writer to me. Um, it ended up being Bob Odenkirk, who oh! was not not, that, not as famous at the time and not um, in any way uh, known to me, perhaps you know, reflecting my own ignorance. But I remember thinking, like, boy, these writers sure are funny and <laughs> fun to interview and so smart. And then I go back and I Google this Odenkirk character. I was like, oh. Yeah, and then now he's an Emmy <laughs> nominee. And that? now he's kind of a big deal. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, well, Rebecca, if there is a strike, we will certainly have you uh, back on to help us explain what in the world is going to happen, and we're going to have a lot of very surreal late-night shows to
2: watch, at least.
1: <laughs> this is true. And this I, is
2: true. I would ask that we all pray for the MTV movie and TV awards.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Let us now have I a mean, moment. What yeah, will finally. happen to our culture if it's if that show suffers? Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. As always, thanks, guys. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. Please keep rating and reviewing us on iTunes and talking to us on Twitter and and otherwise letting us know that you're listening. We love hearing from you. We're all at VanityFair.com, including Mike and Joanna, who have not gone far. And on Twitter, I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rylaws. And we're all at Little Gold Men. This episode was produced by Jordan Bell and Alana Milner and edited by Jordan Bell. And this week's award goes out to a very special producer who is leaving us after this episode. Alana Milner has been with us for almost a year, has been delightful. So this week's award for what you would say for any podcast episode produced by Alana Milner goes to me. I Um, mean, it's the like, it's, you know, it's a classic for anyone's career.